Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. You know, as believers, every single day we are faced with A choice. And we are faced with an ever-present danger of compromising with this world. Right from the time we wake up. Whether it's in the, uh, what we see on TV, through what is reported, through what we read from the world, through the movies and the cartoons and the shows, through what many of the politicians may say and our interactions with the world, every day we are being taught. We're being taught in a certain way as to how to think about ourselves, what to think of our identity, what to think about human beings. Every day we are being taught by the world about what to think about family and what to think about our children and what to think about parenting and what to think about what is happening in the world and the way of the world. Every single day through different channels we are being taught this way whether we like it or not. And as believers, we are faced with the challenge of do we listen to what the world continuously says to us and compromise, or do we listen to what God has to say from His Word and hold fast to His Word and hold fast to who Jesus is and live faithfully according to His ways and for His glory. You know, the chapter before us is really a chapter that serves as a warning. I mean, you might read this chapter at first and think, I mean, there's so much of sin, you know, such heinous sin going on here. And yet when we think of the, the context in which this is written, the reason why this passage has been written also becomes clear. If you remember, the Israelites are waiting to enter the land of Canaan. And we know already that Jacob, in a sense, his journey has been something of the life of his descendants, the people of Israel. Where they were in Egypt under exile, under Pharaoh, under servitude. They wandered about, turned away from God, and then finally, they, finally he returns to the land. And now the danger that Jacob faces, Jacob and his family faces, is are they going to be faithful to the Lord or are they going to compromise and be like the world around them? Are they going to be like the Canaanites? In fact, even for the Israelites listening to this, this would be the question. That as you are preparing to enter the land, understand that the land that you're entering into, there's going to be a lot of Canaanites. And there's always the danger of compromise. And so are you going to stand faithful to the Lord and live as His people, or are you going to become like the Canaanites? This morning as we look at this chapter, we will see the the wickedness of the world around us as we see the wickedness of the people of Canaan. 
And we will even see the danger of compromise and the, the, the intent of it is therefore don't compromise. Live faithfully to the Lord and depend on Him as you live in this wicked world. We'll look at this text this morning under three headings. We'll look first at the violation in verses 1 through 7. And then we'll look at the negotiation in verses 8 through 24. And then lastly, we'll look at the destruction in verses 25 to 31. The violation, the negotiation, and the destruction. So let's look first of all at the violation. And this is really the violation of Dinah. Verse 1 says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. Now Dinah is most likely a teenager at this point. A few years have passed since Jacob and his family have come and settled near Shechem in the land of Canaan. Now in those days, it would have been quite unusual for a young foreign girl to be roaming around by herself in foreign territory. You know, no, normally if you're a foreigner, and especially a woman, there would normally be other people with you as well. If you remember both Abraham and Isaac, they knew that it was dangerous for women. And there was a potential that the husband could be killed and the, the woman could be taken by force. And that's why both of them, both Abraham and Isaac, if you remember, lied about their wife saying, she is my sister. Those days, it was not a safe place for the women. And even more unsafe if the foreign women were wandering about alone in the land. And so here we see Dinah is going out to see the women of the land. What do we know about Canaanite women? Well, if you remember back in Genesis 26 and 35, when Esau married Canaanite women, it made life difficult for Isaac and Rebekah. And then in Genesis 27 and 46, where Rebekah herself says that Esau's Canaanite wives, where she says, I loathe my wife because of these women, because of my daughter-in-laws, because they have a different worldview. They have a different way of life, a different way of living, a different way of thinking. You see, the Canaanites were also, even the women, they were godless women. They had a godless way of life. And so it would seem that Dinah was drawn to the, the women at Shechem, which are really just Canaanite women because it's the land of Canaan. And so Dinah is drawn to the Canaanite women and their, women and their ways, or at the very least, she's curious about their ways. So this was an unwise thing for Dinah to go see the women of the land and that too on her own in this foreign land. Now as she goes out by herself, verse 2 says, And when Shechem the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. I mean, a terrible thing this person named Shechem does to Dinah. There is a sense in which the words that are used to describe Shechem's actions should remind us of the fall, where Eve lusted after the forbidden fruit and then took it for herself. Here Shechem, the, the prince of the land, 
most likely the one who's, who is, the land is named after him. So he's a prince of the land and he saw this young foreign woman in the land wandering by herself, lusted after her and took her for himself. And Shechem's uncontrolled lust led him to violate and essentially rape Dinah. I mean, this is an atrocious sin on Shechem's part. But look at his reaction after he has done this atrocious sin, verses 3 and 4. And his soul, talking about Shechem's soul, and his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. And so Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. You know, about the only good thing going for Shechem is that he didn't just violate Dinah and then just leave her. In fact, the text says that after his encounter with her, he now is infatuated and even loves Dinah and wants to marry Dinah and demands that his father get this girl for him. You know, it's interesting that the word that's used here, where it's translated, his soul was drawn to Dinah, that word drawn can also be translated as cling. That his soul clung to Dinah. It's the same word that's used in Genesis 2.24 to talk about the marriage relationship. Where a man and woman is to leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife. It's that same word cling that's used here. And so what the text is telling us is that Shechem has perverted the clinging of a man and a woman. This is a forced intimacy. According to God's design, what comes first is the marriage. The covenant commitment to one another before the Almighty God. Between the man and the woman. Then comes the clinging together as one flesh. And the physical intimacy is to be enjoyed within that relationship. And that relationship alone. Shechem has forced the clinging together so to speak. And now he wants to get married to the woman. This is a complete perversion. And a violation of God's design for marriage. It's really just a reversal. That the benefits of the marriage start first and then moving into marriage. And what's worse is that when Shechem and his father come to speak to Jacob and his sons, as we read, as the text continues on, there is never any acknowledgement of wrongdoing. There is no remorse shown whatsoever about the atrocious sin that has been committed. They don't see the grave moral indecency that has been committed. And what this tells us is the culture of the Canaanites. How morally perverse it was. That it was sort of the norm that, you know, you have foreign women, if men wanted them, they would just take them by force. And either have them for later or just throw them aside. That's how perverse the Canaanite culture was. This was normal in that culture. Verse 5 says, Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. You know, what's shocking is that 
Jacob remains quiet and passive. You know, some say, oh, you know, the text says he was waiting for his sons. But really, when you look at this entire chapter, Jacob is very passive. He doesn't say anything or do anything. In fact, the only time Jacob speaks is at the end of the chapter, and it's not out of concern for his daughter, not out of concern for what his sons have done, but he simply speaks because of concern for himself. That's the only time he speaks at the end of the chapter. Now contrast Jacob's reaction to the reaction of his sons, verses 6 and 7. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. So as soon as the, the sons of Jacob, the Brothers heard about what happened to Dinah. They returned quickly from the field. And they're very indignant and angry. They're indignant or, or even grieved. It's like the reaction God had to the wickedness in Noah's time in Genesis 6.6. Where it said that God was grieved or indignant with all the sin that he saw during the time of Noah. And then he sends judgment in the form of flood. So there's a big contrast here between Jacob's reaction or lack of reaction really to what has happened to Dinah and Jacob's son's reactions who are rightly indignant and angry because of what has been done to their sister. Now you might ask, but why is Jacob so passive? I mean, isn't he the go-getter kind of person? So what's happened to him now? Well, I think one clue we get from, if we look back at verse 1, where it says, Dinah, the daughter of Leah. Now, this is quite unusual in the Bible. Because normally when a person is introduced, if at all, they will be introduced with their father's name, not their mother's name. So what the text is telling us by introducing the mother's name, that this Dinah is the daughter of Leah, it is telling us that this is the daughter of Jacob's unloved or despised wife. So when you contrast then Jacob's response to what happened to his daughter, the daughter of his unloved wife, compared to his son's reactions to it, or as we will see in Genesis 37, when you compare Jacob's response to what he hears about apparently happened to Joseph that he was killed and how he reacts to that, you know, the son of his beloved wife, Rachel. It's a very different response. And so what we can only conclude is that Jacob favored only his beloved wife, Rachel, and those children. And this would in some sense explain why Dinah may have wandered out in the land. Because Jacob was derelict in his duty as a father to protect his daughter, to tell her of the dangers of the people of the land, to instruct her in the ways of the Lord. Now a couple of applications from this section. You know, as we see Jacob's lack of love for his wife Leah and a neglect of her children and really her children and simply favoring Rachel and her children. 
It shows that Jacob, even as a believer, still has very sinful tendencies. It doesn't mean that Jacob is not a believer of Yahweh, but he is being sinful. He is being negligent of his other wives and children. You know, sometimes we can wrongly think that just because someone is a believer, and if they have love for the Lord, or oh, you know that love for others, that'll just automatically happen. Well, if that were true, then what's happening with Jacob would be an absolute misnomer. No, it's not always automatic. And that's exactly why there are commands in Scripture for believers to love others. Because of your love for God, to, to love your spouse, to love your children, to love other believers, and to love the lost. That's why those commands are given. Because it's not always automatic. Yes, it is our relationship with the Lord that, that love for the Lord that flows out into love for others, starting with our family. But nonetheless, we too have a part to play in it as we depend on the Lord, where we have to be intentional and we have to be informed by God's Word in how we treat others around us. It is not simply going to happen passively. Because... If that were so, we would end up like Jacob in how he treats his other wives and his children. You know, another application from this, and we've seen this again and again, that as fathers and as parents, we have a duty to teach our children the ways of the Lord. to teach them about the dangers of this world, to teach our little girls to avoid being naive about the world, to train our boys to honor and protect women as, as precious in God's sight, as precious image bearers of God. You know, one of the things that we need to remind ourselves, even as I'm reminding myself even now, for those of us who are parents, it is not our parenting that will save our children. It doesn't guarantee it. It doesn't guarantee changed hearts. It is God's work of grace and God's work of grace alone. And yet we know that this is what God tells believer parents to do, to bring up the children in the ways of the Lord. To teach them what is right and wrong. To teach them to honor the Lord and to follow the Lord. And we know that that's oftentimes the means that he uses to save children. Because we also know that oftentimes it's parents, particularly those who completely neglect their children, go the way of the world. Those who are not concerned about their children, to bring them up in the ways of the Lord. So here we get a sense that Jacob is not nurturing or disciplining or raising Dinah in the fear and instruction of the Lord. He's completely neglecting her. And it leads to the violation of his daughter as she wanders into the world. This now brings us to now the negotiation in verses 8 through to 24. The negotiation. 
But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give you whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Notice as Hamor and Shechem come to speak to Jacob and his sons, again, there is no acknowledgement of the atrocity that has been done. I mean, this is just a normal thing for them. What's there to confess? What's there to acknowledge? And yet we see also that Hamor is very diplomatic here. First he tells Jacob and his sons, My son Shechem truly loves your daughter and he wants to marry her. And then he tells them, let's make this thing bigger now. You know, let's intermarry and, and, and let's all just be one people. You can live with us. You can make more money. You can even get the land from us and enjoy all the privileges of being like a Canaanite. And then lastly, Shechem himself says, I will give you anything the bridal price and gift, whatever you want to marry Dinah, to have this alliance with you. Now a couple of things to note here. If you remember, both Abraham and Isaac, they wanted their sons to not be married to Canaanite women. That's why they sent them to Padanaram. Abraham sent his servant, and then Isaac sent his son Jacob to Padanaram to find a wife from there. Why? Because Canaanites were godless, immoral people. So the danger now with the marriage proposal and the idea of Jacob's family marrying into these people, into the Canaanite people, is for God's people, the family of Jacob, to become like the godless, immoral Canaanites. That's what the danger is now. And notice also the enticement, where he says, you can even get the land and all the privileges that come with it. Now, who has already promised land to Jacob and his family? God has, right? God said, I will give you this land, all that you see. And here Hamor is offering the land saying, you can have it if you join us and we become one. You can almost hear the hiss of the serpent. Take the forbidden fruit. And enjoy the benefits of it. Join me. Listen to me. Don't listen to God and his ways. And life will be much better for you. Or even Satan himself when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness saying, Bow down to me and I will give you the kingdoms of the world. When God himself had promised the kingdoms of the world to Jesus. See, what Satan was tempting Jesus with, that offer of the nations, was without the price of Jesus having to go to the cross. You can have it easy. I'll give it to you. You don't have to do all that. And similarly here, Hamor is offering a shortcut to get the land. Come join us. Intermarry with us. 
Become one people with us. And you can have the land and all the benefits that come with it. See, the temptation from the world for believers even today is very similar. Where it says, come join us. We will give you all you want, all that God has promised. Oh, we'll give you that and more. If you just simply accept our standards and our values and reject God and His ways. Oh, you don't have to deny the cross. You don't have to deny yourself. You don't have to carry the cross and follow Jesus and you know, wait for Him whenever that is to fulfill all those promises. No, you can have it now. The easy way is here. Come and join us. Adopt our values and systems and be like us. And you will have it all. When we are tempted this way, beloved, we just need to remind ourselves that this is the serpent hissing through the system of the world. And it is in fact the path of ruin and ultimate condemnation. One John two fifteen and sixteen tells us, "Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world." Or even more pointedly in Romans 12, 2, where it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Where we are to daily renew our mind with the word of God, rather than daily being conformed to the world and its ways. So yes, while we are to live in this world, we're not to live like the world and adopt its values and thinking and ways of living. Instead, we are to live as those who belong to the Lord and be His witnesses in the world. We are to be a holy and separate people, a people distinct from the world, distinct from the way the world lives, set apart for the Lord Jesus. So as we see here, this proposal for Jacob's family to marry into the Canaanites, this would be a terrible thing if it went on forward. Now let's look at how the sons of Jacob then respond to this proposal. Verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem, and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled her sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. So to Hamor and Jacob's offer, Jacob's sons offer now, a counter-offer to that. You know, first they rightly say, it's, it's wrong to give our sister to someone who is uncircumcised. That's the right thing to say. But then Jacob's sons go on to say, if you and your people, Hamor, Shechem, and all your people, if your, you and your people get circumcised on that condition alone, we will agree to this marriage. Now I want you to think about this. This counter-offer that Jacob's sons make 
is not out of spiritual concern. See, Jacob's sons are not telling Shechem and his people, you need to turn away from your wicked way. You need to turn from your idols. And you need to turn to the true and living God that is Yahweh alone, the one true living God. Only He can save you. And if you're going to follow this Yahweh, then be circumcised also. That's not what they're doing. Remember, circumcision is what? It's the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. It was the external sign that indicated that the way that that person was marked out as part of the people of God, as the people of Yahweh. That's not what Jacob's sons are calling Shechem and his people to do. They're not calling them to follow the Lord. They're simply getting Shechem and his people to be circumcised because they have a calculated plan in place. In fact, as we will see, their plan is to massacre all these people. You know, verse 13 specifically says that they answered deceitfully, Jacob's sons. Jacob the deceiver, now his sons being deceitful. The sons had learned a thing or two from their father about deception. The sins of the father following the children. And what they're going to do now is to use God's covenant sign to deceive these unbelievers to carry out their own interests. I mean, that's a horrible thing. I mean, just think about it. You know, one theologian used the example of baptism. The, the, the sign of the new covenant, it, it's kind of like using baptism to kill people. Where you tell people, come, be baptized. And they come, they're dunked in the water, and then those people are drowned. That's what they're doing with the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. It's a horrible thing that they're doing. Now, Hamor and Shechem, they're unaware of the plans of Jacob's sons. And so they agree to getting all their men circumcised. Look at verses 18 through to 22. It says, their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing, but he, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So, or in other words, most held up high, the most influential, the prince of the land. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them as our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. But notice now, you know, Hamor and his son Shechem, their true intentions now are stated to their people. They appeal to their greed and basically say, listen, there's something in it for us as well. Yes, circumcision might be a painful thing, but there's something great for us as well. Notice what they say. 23. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. You see, when they spoke to Jacob and his sons, they put it as, oh, it's going to be to your benefit. Now, as they're talking to their people, their true intentions come out. 
which is to, we're going to take over them and take over all their property and everything else that they've got. Verse 24. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, and all who went out of the gate of his city. Now just one thing to note here and to think of. Jacob's son's actions to use religious practices for personal gain has continued on in various forms over the years. Where people use the name of the Lord Jesus, use the name of Christianity for their own sinful reasons. We can think of the many wars over the centuries that have been fought in the name of Christianity where innocent people and children and women have been massacred. You know, even in our day and age, we we think of the false teachers, the health, wealth, prosperity teachers where they name the name of Christ and have a form of religion, but really their intention is to just make money for themselves and make a great name for themselves. Sometimes we have politicians who will use religion and the name of Jesus to win votes for themselves. When really, you know, they have no interest in Jesus. Other times you will have people who go to church to, to think that they are in a right relationship with the Lord while rest of the week they live like the world. Using a religious form for selfish interests, for sinful interests. Still others, and this is probably more common, They cling on to the fact that God is a forgiving God and use that as an excuse to sin. Oh, my God is forgiving. You know, Jesus has paid it all. And you know, no one is perfect. So, you know, I can still continue to sin. Just just a little bit more sin. It's okay. It's all forgiven. And I can continue in it. There could be so many other instances that you and I could possibly think of, but let me just say this. May we all be mindful to never use the name of the Lord or His ways to accomplish our sinful desires. This now brings us to our third point, the destruction. Really the destruction of the people of Shechem. In verses 25 to 31. So at this point, the men of Shechem, they've all been circumcised. Now verse 25 says, On the third day when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with a sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. So here's what's happened. While the men of Shechem are still in pain and weak from circumcision and the blood loss and whatnot, Simeon and Levi, two of the sons of Leah, Dinah's blood brothers, they are so riled up that they attack the men of the city in their weak state and destroy all the men in the city, including Hamor and Shechem. And they rescue Dinah from Shechem's house. I mean, this is a bloody massacre. You know, on the one side, we would say, as we think about this, the indignation and the desire for justice, that is right on the part of the sons of Jacob. But what Simeon and Levi did, that's not biblical justice. That's vengeance. 
See, because the punishment, it is not equal to the crime. It doesn't fit the crime. For one person's crime, Shechem, the one person did the crime, now the whole city is punished. The whole city is massacred. That's not biblical justice. That's out of control vengeance. You know, this is more like how Lamech responded. For those of you who've been with us for, I don't know, maybe a year, year and a half, I can't remember now. Back in Genesis 4, Lamech, the descendant of Cain, a godless and violent man who boasted, if anyone were to ever cross my path, then my revenge on them will be 77-fold. That's how a godless person speaks. Evil Lamech spoke like that. And here, we see Jacob's sons acting out in vengeance like that. And if that's not all, the rest of Jacob's sons join in and loot the land. Verse 27 says, The sons of Jacob now come upon the slain and, and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. So it's not just massacring all the men, they've looted the entire land now. Jacob now finally speaks. But it's really shocking what his concern is here. Verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land the Canaanites and the Parasites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Notice the number of times me and I are used in this verse. Jacob is not concerned about what happened to his daughter Dinah. Jacob is not concerned that his sons have slaughtered all the men and have plundered the city and taken the women and the children of the city as captives. There's no concern for his children here. There's no concern for the ways of his sons, how they have sinned against God, how his daughter has been sinned against. Jacob, is simply concerned about his own skin and what their actions now might mean for him. Now Jacob's sons retort back, verse 31. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? You know, just use her and then at the end of it, try and pay her off. And there's silence after that and the scene ends. Jacob has no answer. In fact, if you look at this chapter, the repeated mention of Jacob's daughter, Jacob's daughter, and then the repeated mention of Jacob's sons, Jacob's sons, it's, it's emphasizing again and again and again how Jacob has been derelict in his duty as a father. Jacob's daughter has been defiled. Jacob's sons have gone on a killing spree. But Jacob is not concerned. Now the question that is asked here, what then should have been done about the sin 
of the Canaanite Shechem? How should he have treated, uh, should he have treated her like this? What about justice? Where is justice? How should justice have been meted out? And that question is left answered, unanswered, at least at this point. If you remember, when God had told Abraham, he said, I will give you this land. But right now, there are all these Canaanites. And by implication, what, jo- what God was saying is, I am being patient with these Canaanites right now. I'm being patient till a point will come when the sin of the people of Canaan will reach a point of no return. At that point, I will bring out my judgment against these people and they will be removed from the land. And in the fullness of God's time, when the nation of Israel came under Joshua to enter the land. God then sanctioned Israel as his agent of justice to destroy the Canaanites in total. Why? Because now not just one man, the entire nation had become so immoral and corrupt and so godless that they were even sacrificing babies to their idols. God would one day bring about justice. Where will justice come from? God will bring it about. And this episode is reminding the Israelites of the kind of people the Canaanites are, how wicked they were even in the early days and how wicked they have become now in their time. And how God's going to mete out his judgment on them. Now by application I I want us to ask this question. How are we to deal with the sin and injustice around us? Well certainly we don't deal with the sin and injustice by going the way of the Canaanites. See, because the solution for the Canaanites was become like us. Adopt our way of life. You know, normalize sin. Reject the ways of God and let's just all be happy and merry. The same thing that the world tells us. Join us in our sin. Reject God's ways. Let's just normalize all these sinful ways. Get God out of the picture. I mean, that's certainly not a way to deal with sin by going right into it even more and normalizing it. Nor is the solution to take things into our own hands like the sons of Jacob and meet out vengeance. See, because even as believers, because of our sinful tendencies, we will be tempted to carry out the punishment for any injustice in a way that is out of proportion to the crime because of our sinful tendencies. And that is exactly why the Lord has established the government authorities to restrain evil and to carry out justice. So on the one side, we don't remain passive and quiet when there's injustice. But on the other side, we don't mete out vengeance, but we go to the appropriate authorities that God has established to impart justice. And yes, sometimes those authorities don't carry out justice. And because of that, we may have to suffer injustice. That is also part of living in this cursed world. But we must remember, even if we were to suffer injustice and those in authorities over us are not doing their job of protecting 
the people under them. We must remember that God is still working for our good in those times. And we should even bring to mind what we read this morning from Romans 12, uh, 19 to 21, where it says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, Genesis 34 is a, is a dark chapter. It's a very dark chapter. I mean, this just sin everywhere. It's almost, you know, oppressing and suffocating, just seeing just all this sinfulness around. You know, Dinah is attracted to the godless world around her. Jacob is passive and unconcerned about his children and God's ways. Hamor and Shechem are godless and totally immoral along with their people. Jacob's sons have acted out in rage, and they're not any better than the godless people around them. So here's the bigger question. How is God going to fulfill his promise to save human beings that are sinful? I mean, here we see God's people acting sinfully. I mean, God's going to use them to bring salvation into this world? How? I mean, what about the injustice that the sons of Jacob has done? You know, somebody reading this, just knowing nothing else, will be like, okay, so the sons of Jacob did this, but they massacred the whole city. What about justice for them? Well, we don't find an answer here. But the answer comes as we turn the pages of Scripture and as history moves forward. Where the Lord of justice is also the Lord of mercy and grace. Where He sends His eternal Son the sinless one, the glorious one. Come into this wicked, wretched world. And then to die for sinful people. To take our place to be punished for every injustice that you and I have done and to bear the judgment and the wrath of God on himself. Though he knew no sin, he was made sin on our behalf. So that those of us who are believers today, those of us who are Christians, could be forgiven of our sins. And not only that, after Jesus died and rose again, he now gives new life, a life that is empowered by his grace to say no to sin, to, to say no to the ungodliness of this world, and to live for him and him alone. Friend, if you're here this morning, and you're not a Christian. You know, per perhaps you are immoral and those sort of ways, if not those sort of ways, those kind of thinking like Shechem and Hamor and those kind of people. Perhaps you're listening this morning and you're not those kind of people, but you're a fairly religious person, a very 
fairly moral person. Let me say to you, friend, every single day that you live, you are still continuing to sin against the perfect standard of God and you stand guilty before him. Injustice is being committed against the God of the entire universe by you every single day. Friend, the only way for you to be saved, to be accepted in the sight of this holy God, is to turn back to him. Is to turn back to Jesus and see what he has done. And believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in what he has done on the cross. And if you say this morning, I believe, then I would say to you, turn from living for yourself. Turn from living in your sin and turn to the Lord Jesus and live for him and him alone. For those of us who are believers, yes, Genesis 34 is a dark chapter. There is not one mention of God in this chapter. And even that is significant. Because everyone is acting according to their own way, including God's people. And it is a reminder for God's people that we still are a people who have been saved by grace and grace alone. Sinful people who have been saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ alone. That is who we are. And so as we remember that, we would also remember as we look at this world as, as glamorous as it may seem, as as attractive as it may seem, we should understand that this is a wicked, vile, godless world. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. But that doesn't mean, therefore, we, we harm those around, them, around us. It doesn't mean we are rude to people around us. No, instead we look at people around us with compassion and say, they need Jesus. And God calls me to live in this wicked and vile world for Him, to represent Him. Yes, I am to deny myself and carry the cross and follow Jesus. But the goal is that as we do that, as we follow Jesus and deny ourselves and carry the cross, that we would live that separate life as God's people, as Christians. And as we do that, we not only give glory to God, that even through that, God will cause some people in the world to look at us and say, there's something different about these people. They're not like the world. Would you tell me why are you so different than this wicked, vile world? And those will be opportunities that God will give us to call people to himself. May we heed the warning in this passage to not assimilate into the world around us. For us to live as pilgrims in this world. To live as distinct people, as Christians, not as worldly people, representing Jesus for his glory and for the good of his people. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the great God you are. We know that apart from you, we can do nothing. If it were not for your grace, we would continue in our sinful lifestyle perhaps in some ways externally moral, but deep down inside still as filthy as anything, vile and corrupt. Lord, yet we thank you for your grace in that you sent your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf so that we would be made right with you 
and we would be enabled to live in this godless, vile world to be shining lights, to give glory to you, to be testimonies of your grace, and to be instruments that you would use to be a blessing to others and bring salvation to this world. Lord, help us to deny ourselves, carry the cross, and follow Jesus. And may this be our portion till the day that Jesus comes. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.